two friends, Alan Dale and Jerry Carew, who grew up just a few streets apart in St. John's East End, have been separated by Canada's geography for three decades. They came together virtually during the pandemic to chat about like-minded interests. Alan lives in PEI and Jerry in Newfoundland. Thriving in remoteness has been a common theme for both of them during the pandemic. Gale Force wins. The podcast is the result. And welcome to another edition of Gale Force Wins. I'm Alan Dale, and with me as always, my good buddy from the East End of St. John's, Newfoundland, Jerry Carew. How are you, Jerry? Doing well, Alan. Uh, we are now about to talk to another person who was affected deeply by 9-11. Uh, that's 20 years ago. Um, so I'm looking forward to hearing Larry Pittman's story and how that affected him and what went on in Goose Bay, because it was, as we discussed, you know, there was a lot of other sites around Atlantic Canada that received a lot of passengers. So this uh, I'm looking forward to digging in. 100 percent, Jerry. I can't wait to hear the story about Larry's involvement on September 11th. But I got to tell you, the story goes a little bit further back than that with Larry Pittman and I. Larry and I were, uh, well, I was younger uh, in cadets and Larry and Larry was somebody that I very much looked up to. Uh, and I, to be quite honest with you, uh, he was a role model to me when I was a young man going through the cadet organization. And I can tell you, I'm excited to hear the story about September 11th, but I'm also equally excited to hear what Larry's been up to in the last number of years. So without further ado, Larry, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Well, thanks for the, uh, positive accolades and being uh, someone you looked up to. So I really appreciate that. And yes, you and I have gone back uh, a lot of years. Uh, born and raised in St. John's uh, many, many years ago. Uh, went through the Boy Scouts and uh, I guess the most pivotal decision for me was at an early age was I wanted to join the Sea Cadets. I had uh, a brother involved, four cousins, and a number of family members. So at the point in time when I joined the cadets, there was actually seven Pittmans involved with the turnover sea cadets. And I used to see my brother go off to cruises and all kinds of wonderful places with the cadet program. So I joined that for that very reason, and, and it's been successful. And through that, I managed to go up through the ranks as a cadet and even managed to then transfer as a junior officer and work my way up as the commanding officer of turnover sea cadets. And then during the summertime, I used my cadet experience and I would teach sailing to the youth of Atlantic Canada at the military establishment in Cornwallis, Nova Scotia. So starting off, I was into the ABA, into the uh, naval tradition, even at some point looked at possibly going reg force like yourself. Uh, not sure where I strayed on that one, but I ended up going into the reserves. And that helped me as I talked to many organizations, if I could think of an organization or a decision that helped build my foundation, it was definitely involved with the cadet program. So making the decision at 12 years old just to decide to travel 
uh, turned out to be one of the most pivotal decisions I, I made in my, in my life. Because from that, I was able to get a public relations job with the Marine Institute. And that was because of the experience I had doing public relations. Great, first time I've done that. First time I've done that, Larry. I accidentally hit it. Keep going. Oh, great. So Marine Institute you're talking about. So my time with the uh, Sea Cadets, I did public relations as part of my dual role as the commanding officer and some other positions. And that helped me get a job out of university with the Marine Institute. And having the Navy background working at the Marine Institute helped me with that. And that small job of, I think it was six or seven months back in the late 80s, helped me three years later when I heard that the base in Goose Bay was looking for a public affairs officer. So in the military, is for those who are not aware, there's your regular force and then you get your reserve uh, position. So the position that they were looking to fill was a full-time reservist, what they call at that time a class C. I applied on it because of my experience with the cadets, because of my experience with the Marine Institute of Public Relations. I ended up getting a job in Goose Bay as the base public affairs officer. So I went from the Air Force, or sorry, went from the Navy to the Air Force. And at that time, there was the United we won't States. Hold that. We won't hold that against you. No, no. <laughs> And at that time, we had the United States Air Force, uh, obviously the Canadian Air Force, the Royal Air Force, the Royal Netherlands Air Force, and there was probably another one. So very quickly immersed myself into how does the base operate? How, you know, how does the aircraft fly? What's the armament on it? What's its range? What's its weight? And very quickly became knowledgeable of the a aviation industry because... I had to speak to it in front of the, the media, and sometimes the media was worldwide. I handled airplane crashes and bomb threats and a whole bunch of other things for three or four years with the, uh, with the Canadian Forces as their public affairs officer. Yeah. And that yeah. then transcended into a number of years later where I became the first airport manager for the Goose Bay Airport Corporation. So the chain, the link goes from making the decision as a 12-year-old to a variety of jobs with the cadet to ending up being the airport manager on September 11th. Hard to, <laughs> hard to predict that that's the direction it would have, go, would have gone when you, oh, were following, <laughs> when you were looking at your brother going out the door with his boots shined and you wanted to be a part of that. What, what, what was it about cadets back then that was so uh important to you what, what was it that draw i mean your brother was there for sure he had a lot of relatives in there but there was something about you and i remember in cadets back then you were like the guy you were the best turned out one there and what was it about cadets that drew you in so much i guess it was the fact that they gave you so much encouragement they would, you know, there was a lot of teaching, like even simple of how to stand at attention, how to stand at ease and that kind of stuff. But as you got into your second or third year, they gave you responsibilities to teach the younger cadets. And they always made you feel, you know, that you were part of the team and it was a camaraderie ship 
and it developed the leadership at a very young age. And I've, I've, you know, looked at kids today that are in their twenties and thirties and got no leadership understanding or experience. Whereas with the cadet program that was written in spades. And yeah. if you took the attention and did the, you know, uh, time and effort. So I should say about polishing your boots and, I made this comment to uh, my wife not long ago. I was ironing a shirt and I said, I can remember back in the days when I was in cadets, it would take me 30 minutes just to iron my collar on the blue uniform. <laughs> and so you would spend the time because you knew that there was an expectation that you needed to be uh, in top-notch uh, condition and you took the pride in yourself and you shine your boots and you pressed your pants and you sewed your own buttons on and so it just gave you a, an immediate sense of uh, euphoria, responsibility, and said, look, this group, this organization has a lot of trust and faith in me. And then I just bought it up. I just absolutely love the cadet program, still love it. I still think it's the best youth program in the world. And uh, I wouldn't be where I am today without it. So, yeah, it was, it's just you were part of the team. A hundred percent. That's a great way to describe the whole thing. And, and, Lifelong friends along the way, you know, people Absolutely. that people that you were kids with, you can I can reflect back and I'm still in touch with many of them now to this very day um, and friends and, and, and I count you as one of those. So you make that transition uh, into the Air Force, you're up there as a public affairs officer. Did you take over the job as airport manager while in uniform or was that then out of uniform? That was uh three or four years later. So the in, in the interim, so I left, uh, the uh, reservist contract was up and I was replaced by a full-time Canadian Forces Public Affairs Officer. During that, uh, as I left the military on the um, reserve contract, I was um, asked to work for the town of Happy Valley Goose Bay as their first director of economic development. Okay. And when you're speaking of economic development, people often think about expansion, but one of the most important aspects of economic development is retention. Right. So right. the Department of National Defense was going through an environmental assessment review process and conducting low level flying at the base in Goose Bay
Goose Bay Civil Aviation operates within a military base. The only other place in Canada that operates that way is in Colmax. So it's a unique situation. If you think of uh, Deer Lake as a simpler example, they just did the negotiations with Transport Canada and they, they assume Transport Canada's role. Ours right. tripartite discussions between Transport Canada for responsibility and then parallel to that discussions with D&D on how we're going to operate. So they were going to provide air traffic control, firefighting, uh, snow clearing, use of the runways, taxiways, all that sort of stuff for a fee that we paid on a monthly basis. A lot of moving parts there. <laughs> a, a, a lot. Yeah, a lot of moving parts. What did you study in university to prepare you for that? Um, I guess the quick answer was nothing directly. My degree is in political science. Yeah. So uh, I guess the takeaway from political science is that it uh, taught me a lot about the uh you know, legislation and international relationships and uh, how to write. Obviously, I had to write a lot of papers in uh, political science, so that helped me yeah. on the public relations side. So, so that kind of thing, but nothing, nothing directly. That's a, that's a, it's a heavy lift job setting that up for sure. So you're sitting there, life's pretty good, rolling along, you're running the, the airport in Goose Bay. What's next? So for the first couple of years, it's, just started so we took over in 97 October 97 so the first couple of years is literally building this organization and collecting landing fees and just doing the day-to-day -day operations repairing runways and you know the safety of the operations that kind of stuff so in the daytime I was you know I jokingly referred to in the daytime I'm the airport manager and then once a month, I'm the executive director for the organization, reporting back to the board of directors with the financial statements, how well we, you know, did this particular month or, and, you know, that kind of stuff. I, you know, had roads built and hangars built and that kind of stuff during, wow. the, during the early days. And then uh, September 11 comes, it was a Tuesday, and my main assistant, Sylvia, uh, comes in, and, be, and before I get into that story, Goose Bay and Northern Canada in particular are always behind in getting services that you get in Southern Canada. So we didn't have the internet and cell coverage. We had some internet service, but very, very weak, and we didn't have any cell coverage at all. Wow. So I'm in my office working away and Sylvia comes in and says, an airplane just hit the tower down in New York. I said, oh, I think I'll go on my computer because we didn't have a phone. I said, I'll see what that's about. So I take a few minutes to find it and I see it. As I'm watching this video, she opens the door again. She says, a second airplane hit. To this day, 20 years later, I'm still not sure. And I guess it's just, you know, as we go through the military, Alan, you have that innate sense of something's wrong and I need to respond. So I said to her, tell the base commander I'm on the way to the command post. She said, what for? I said, something's on the go in the world and I need to be at the command post. Sure enough, I got to the command post two or three minutes later. 
D&D was uh, starting up the command post and we started getting the words then that, you know, what had happened. And the biggest event that happened that a lot of people don't quite understand was that the Secretary for Transportation for the uh, US government shut down aviation throughout the world. Said all airplanes land now to the closest airport that you can get to. So when we got to the command post, I was in contact with Transport Canada. So the relationship is the Goose Bay Airport Corporation or GBAC as is abbreviated is responsible for civil aviation. D&D is responsible for the military uh, aviation and they subcontracted out all non-core activities. So non-flying activities, if I could simplify it. So air traffic control, firefighting, snow clearing, garbage collection, that type of stuff to a international company called Serco, S-E-R-C-O. Mm-hmm. And Serco still has that contract to this very day. And so between D&D, GBAC and Serco, we were the ones who collectively handled the event of September 11th in Goose Bay. But before any of that could start, I had to formally request and move it up the line to the Minister of National Defense, over to the Minister of Transportation, to ask the question, could D&D locally support us in this event? So once that was uh, approved, then myself and the wing commander worked hand in hand to handle the situation of the aircrafts coming in. So we were told early on, I'm guessing 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning, that there was, for us to expect based upon the um, jet stream or in, to put a plug in for you, the gale forces of that day, uh, <laughs> the stream was, had, was over Labrador at the beginning of the day, but actually shifted south to Gander. So, Technically, the winds that day determined where the aircrafts were going to be landing. So we were told we were having 75, 80 aircraft, and we planned for that. It's the best comparison that I could give is imagine that you're planning for weeks and weeks on end for a wedding, and you're expecting 30, you know, 300, 400 uh, guests to show up to the wedding. And on the day of the wedding, only, you know, pick a number, 40, 50 people show up. Well, all of the planning of buying the dresses and the grooms and the pre-meals uh, and the cards and the invitations and everything else that goes into a wedding, that day was the same thing for us at the airport. So one of the things we had to do was say, okay, where are we going to park 75 heavy aircraft that we don't even know how big they are? how heavy they are, where are we going to park them? How are we going to park them so that they can easily get out so we don't have a you know, total mess on our hands of aircraft trying to, trying to leave? So it's like you know, back in your days when you pulled into port and the ropes had to be tied a certain way so that the guy on the outside could leave or the guy in the middle could scoot out. Same, same parallel with the, with the aircraft. Where are we going to park them? So in order to figure that out, we had to pull out the maps from the 1940s and 1950s that showed the strength of the concrete throughout the airfield. And that was because we couldn't put an aircraft on a piece of concrete 
if the aircraft was too heavy. Right. So that was, that took, oh, we were at least two hours on that trying to figure out, okay, we expect this type of aircraft to come. We expect that type of aircraft. We can put them down the south end, put them over the Canadian side and so forth. So we knew that the, the lighter type aircraft would have to go to the Canadian side of the Goose Bay airfield because it's been dormant for a lot of years. And there's not a lot of traffic. So there's a lot of asphalt there and that kind of stuff. So we went through that and, you know, that, that took a lot of time. And then, you know, the aircraft started to come in in that afternoon. And we ended up with five heavy aircraft, if memory serves me correct. There was one from Air Canada, two from United Airlines, and one from Uzbekistan. Okay. At that time and day, I didn't know where Uzbekistan was. So if you think about what September 11th was about, we now have an aircraft from Uzbekistan, and now it's surrounded by emergency vehicles and nobody is allowed off any of the aircraft. So the best we could do is allow, and we had to get permission from Transport Canada to open the doors and let the guys on the ground pass up cases of water and snacks and that kind of stuff to at least give the passengers some comfort. Uh, we had the trucks come by and clean out the lavatories on the aircraft and give, give some comfort. But nobody was getting on that aircraft and nobody was getting off until we had the approval from Transport Canada and D&D that they have gone through the passenger manifest. They know what's in the, or got a good idea what's in the luggage, what's in the cargo bays of each aircraft. So that took hours upon hours to get through where we were actually processing passengers well into the night, well into, I'm, I'm saying like two, three, four o'clock in the morning that we're processing passengers. Now, Goose Bay, we were fortunate because we're one of the last stops as you go across the pond, across the Atlantic. And we have lots of experience dealing with diversions. So that's an aircraft that has a crack in the windshield, mechanical, uh, smoke in the cockpit, bomb threats, any of that kind of stuff. And so what would happen is that if you had a mechanical, as a good example, the aircraft is probably coming from Los Angeles, gets into Goose Bay, and they can't leave because they need to send the new aircraft up and they got to send a couple of mechanics up to fix it. So those passengers are disembarked. They go through customs and then we put them up in a barracks. So we had that experience. That's what helped us with this process. We had that experience. So we already had a billing assigned and that's where custom cleared all of the passengers off the aircraft. And then we had the busing set up on the other side of the, of the uh, building. And the way we did it is we had five airline, five uh, air forces that had their own barrack blocks so each uh, international uh, country took one aircraft and passengers and they took care of them. So that, that helped us with, with that. Again, one of the things that resonated with me over that time was that as part of our process, there was no cell phones, as I said earlier. And we actually had a bank of phones that our IT section put together. 
and they would plug those into the wall for when we had the, you know, the mechanical diversions and that kind of stuff. So we did the same thing for these folks and they were lining up because now they're trying to phone home to tell people that I'm okay. All they know is they've been on a flight and they don't know where their loved ones are at. They don't know if they're in Gander, they don't know if they're in the UK. And they phone, they say, I'm in Goose Bay. And most most of the time is, where's that? Yeah. <laughs> That's not a very well-known place as in Toronto and Miami, that kind of stuff. But the other component that I was talking about resonated was that most, none of the people knew what had happened in New York. So a lot of them were getting the information from us as to why they were diverted to Goose Bay and why they had to go through this entire process. So that was that was pretty riveting because you're now the one that's breaking the news, just like an anchor person on the news down in it, you know, ABC or CBS saying, here's the reason why you're in Goose Bay and you're going to be here for a couple of days until the world gets this straightened out. Right. So that was a, a lot of time and attention. So even though it was only five aircraft, it took up, you know, for me particularly, I, I didn't sleep for 36 hours because there was just so much work to do. Larry, quick question. You know, we've talked to a passenger already now that landed in Gander. What's interesting to me is that you're behind the scenes of this very similar uh, thing that's unfolding in multiple airports in Atlantic Canada. You have a thousand passengers. You, you, you still don't really know if there's a terrorist amongst those thousand people. Correct. Like that's correct. That was so a, you must have been nervous. Like what what kind of how were you feeling at this point? Uh feeling feeling uh nervous and anxious and um but relied and uh, upon Transport Canada and their process of reviewing the manifest and seeing who was on it and and what it, I'm, I, I'm not familiar with what their process is, but I know that, you know, between Transport Canada and C, um, the, F, uh, the RCMP and other organizations, they have a system in place. They can review a manifest and look at the background of the person. So we took great comfort and faith in that, that our other federal departments were part of this process, helped us out, especially in that part of it of reviewing the manifest. And customs were absolutely phenomenal during that time in, you know, um, asking their screening questions and all of that yeah. sort of stuff. So that's, that's what gave us the, the comfort. How many customs officers were in Goose Bay to handle this <laughs> thousand passengers? It's funny. It's a, it's a great question. I say funny. It's a great question because a couple of customs uh, employees were actually away on a course. And there was only a couple left. So they were shorthanded. And I recall that one of the customs officer, she was only in the job like four or five weeks, <laughs> early 20s. And I remember saying to her a few days later, said, you have just gone through the biggest event that you're ever going to go through through your career within the first few weeks. Yeah. She was great. She learned a lot and great to, to depend upon. Uh, if memory serves me correct, the RCMP would have helped out as well because you're right, there's not a lot of customs people in Goose Bay. Larry, you guys, you had the privilege of being in the military command center. You were getting information, albeit information was a little bit scanty in the first uh, 
you know, 12, 24 hours, often referred to as the fog of war. Um, but information, but you were getting information. Those passengers coming off that plane, they must have been dazed and confused. What, what did they look like, Larry? What did, did they look scared? Did they look, you know? Uh, absolutely scared. That's, that's a great description. Uh, physically tired. If you think about any times we've been on an aircraft for a couple of hours, waiting to get into the gate for whatever reason, and you know the aircrafts are hot. And at that particular day, it was a hot day in Goose Bay. I'm going to guess it was you know 20, 25 degrees. So it was it was a warm day. So they looked haggard. They were disheveled. They were scared. They just didn't they just didn't know what was on the go. And for hours they're looking out through their windows, and all they see is emergency vehicles. Right. And right. like, what's on the go? Where are we? We're in Goose Bay. Well, where's Goose Bay? Yeah. Oh my God! Yeah. So, yeah, they 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 look pretty uh, pretty despondent for sure. The the Newfoundland hospitality must have been kicked in at some point there. That warm embrace that Newfoundland can give. How did that play out? That played out absolutely fantastic here in Goose Bay. As I'm going through the maps of the concrete and where to park them and all that kind of stuff, I've also contacted the community and, you know, the municipality and the mayor was part of the, uh, the uh, airport corporation board of directors. So we had some direct connections there and they then went out and they contacted the lines and the Legion and the Knights of Columbus and, those types of organizations, the churches, uh, the schools were shut down. They shut down all the schools because we thought at one point we we're going to fill up the barracks and we we're going to have to use the, um, you know, the, the legions floor and the schools floor and gymnasium and, and that kind of stuff. And uh, as the town shut down and all the children were sent home from school, then a number of organizations kicked in the gear. The provincial government uh, has a department. I, I can't tell you the exact name of the department. Uh, a lady by the name of Annette Rumbold. She and I spoke uh, on a regular basis. She would give me updates of, you know, how many cots they had. She had the toiletries from, you know, uh, shampoo and soap and toothpaste and toothbrushes. She had all of that arranged and, blankets and that kind of stuff. So when I think about September 11th is that, yes, I had a job to do as the, you know, as the airport manager from an operational perspective and as behind the scenes, but there was a lot of work done by this community and it came up spades and a lot of people spent a lot of time and effort to get ready for those uh, in, uh, potential employees or uh, passengers. Because again, we expected 75 aircraft at 3350 on an aircraft. You're looking at 20, 25,000 passengers. There's only eight to 10,000 people in Goose Bay at the time. So yeah. when you go and you say there's 25,000 come to Halifax, okay, we can handle that. 25,000 come to Goose Bay, you go, oh my God. Yeah. Again, another thing that resonated with me, and the road infrastructure was just starting to get built. So the east to west Trans Labrador Highway from Goose Bay. Lab City was probably in the final stages of putting on gravel or 
the next phase was asphalt, but it wasn't completed. It was it was getting closer within a year or two. And a good friend of mine who worked in the wholesale business who would bring in the food to get to the low to sell to the local grocery stores, he said, based upon your projections and based upon what's in my warehouse, we're gonna be out of food by Friday. Wow. And you go, oh my God. Yeah. So that, you know, is the impact that you have when you're in a small isolated community. Because not only was the aviation industry shut down, but no trucks were allowed to move or any of that kind of stuff because they still weren't sure how all of this was going to unfold. It's amazing to think about. Uh, so you get these folks in, you're getting them, you house them, you, you get them kind of back to some sense of normality as much as that could be in the moment. Now, <laughs> now you've got to get them out. Now you've got to clear all these people back out of Goose Bay. That must have been a process in and of itself as well. It was. It, uh, so that's a lot of my work was following up and it was dealing with the airlines and dealing with Transport Canada because now there's new rules for screening. So as an example, pilots weren't screened prior to September 11th, uh, that Friday, whatever that would have been, the 13th or 14th, all pilots' aircrew had to be screened. So that was a new process. So having to talk to the pilots and say, sorry to tell you this, but here's the new regulations. You had to be screened. And they checked with their own employer and sure enough, they, they understood it. So that was a new process. So getting the pilots screen secret, uh, um, secretly, not secret, of, uh, without, uh, without uh, fanfare, right. we had them screen privately an hour or so before the flight. So we had to arrange that. We didn't want them there at the same time as the passengers. So dealing with the various airlines and their operations centers that they deal with and then coordinating between ourselves, the RCMP and customs that all of the bags are checked and that particular aircraft is ready to go. And it gets, now you got the local ground handlers that, and they're not used to having five heavy aircraft on the ground at the same time either. So now they got to reload that aircraft and now we got to get clearance from air traffic control. So yeah, there was a lot of, lot of uh, work going into when they departed and who departed first. Right. Larry, when you think back of in the moment where the passengers were in Goose Bay, uh, what what was the highlight for you? What If you were to reflect back and say, what was the one thing that I look back on that really was something I was proud of? Proud of the fact that I could contribute to this tragic event that happened in New York City and to you know, provide leadership and a place of comfort for the passengers as they disembark a foreign location in a foreign country to most of them. So that was, that's, that's what I take away. That's, that's, that's what I'm most proud of, of being, being part of it, being part of the team going back to when you said what, you know, what did the cadet program as being part of the team. So the team that I was part of was the Department of National Defense. Circo was a great contributor with the busings and the meals and all that sort of stuff. The RCMP and customs and a number of other provincial organizations. So knowing that um, 
I was able to bring my experience and skills to the table and to help the passengers. That's what I take away most from it. In a time in a time of crisis, it's amazing how Canadians, Atlantic Canadians, come together, help one another, drop the barriers, all the nonsense of bureaucracy. Let's get this thing done. And you're right in the middle of it all, right? You've got to work. You've got to manage Transport Canada. You've got to manage DND. There's a lot of bureaucracy in the mix, mm-hmm. there, right? and you're the guy in the middle trying to make it all happen. But it's amazing how we just want to help as as humans, as Atlantic Canadians. We just want to make this thing work. Would you agree? Absolutely. That's that's who we are, and and that's who we'll continue to be. And you know the. Um, come from away play i mean that's what that resonates is that you know a stranger comes to town and we're here to help you and and that happened throughout the province Gander was obviously the spotlight and deservedly so but there's you know st john's and deer lake and stephenville and goose bay were all part of the uh, uh hosting the or taking care of i guess is a better way of the uh out of town guests that popped in yeah, Barry, do you hear from many of those out-of-town guests? Uh, no, I haven't, actually, no. Um, a lot of them, uh, you know, got on the airplane and continued with their life. And I didn't, except for when they first got off the aircraft late into the night of September 11th, now 12th. Yeah. That was really the only time that I spoke to the passengers. My uh, responsibility was in the command post and dealing with Transport Canada and D&D from that perspective. So uh, I did go and visit them a few times at the mess hall and just chat with them, see where they're from and how they're doing. And we provided local entertainment at the uh, local base theater and took them on tours of the Northwest River, Happy Valley Goose Bay area. And so that was all done by the locals when I say the local community here stepped up in space. That's the kind of things that I refer to. And so my interaction was, was minimum with the passengers. What about the local community? Has there been much interaction with anyone in the community? Kind of like the Gander relationships that were forged? I believe so. I, I, I can't tell you for sure, but I, I remember in the first couple of years after there was, you know, I, I would hear that the individuals were, communicating with people that they'd met uh, back on September 11th. So this is a pretty pivotal thing for you. This happens, I mean, a great journey up there, up to get to this point, and this big event happens in your life. Um, you must have slept like a baby when you hit the, when you hit the uh, rack uh, in, the, in the middle of that. You said you didn't see for 36 hours. You must have been exhausted. I was. They, you know, they actually sent said, "Listen, man, you got to go home. You're just, yeah. you know, you're asleep on your feet." And so that few hours that you know, and I did, I did come home and sleep. And I guess that time I probably had about four or five hours sleep. And I got a phone call that I had to re- come back to the airport because there was a situation that needed my uh, assistance and help. And so yeah, it was a it was a long couple of days. Um, um, you know, I could I could tell you about what happened on September 17th when we had the hot wash, but 
Not sure how much time we got. No, tell us. You know, but we got the whole internet, Larry. We got the okay. whole internet. <laughs> so the following week, as, as we call it in the military, we call it a hot wash. So everyone gets together and says, okay, give us the good, bad, and the ugly. How can we make improvements and all that kind of stuff? And we're probably 15 minutes into the uh, briefing when there's a knock on the door and the person there signals to the wing commander to come out. And then two minutes later, the wing commander pokes his head and he points to me as the head of civil aviation and asks me to come out. And he passes me the information. We now have the U.S. has a threat against George Bush, who was president at the time that when the aircraft lands in New York City, there's a weight-bearing bomb on board and it's going to explode with over 300 passengers on board. So they decided that the best way to handle this was to send it to Goose Bay. Oh, my God. So now we had to reactivate the command post and wait for this aircraft to land. And again, is which airfield or which air... Um, runway do we have this aircraft land on? And so we made the decision to make it, to have it land on the part that was furthest away from the population in Goose Bay. We had to evacuate that area of the airfield and the aircraft landed. And if there's ever a tense moment, and I, I say this to people when they say it's an emergency, and I'll say when there's an emergency is when you're waiting for an aircraft to land that has a weight-bearing bomb that could explode on you. That's an emergency. Yeah. A lot of other things that we think from an administrative perspective, that could probably wait an hour or a half hour. So I say that because I learned from that. And as, you're, as I was in the tower that day watching this thing, and it's almost like a slow motion as it's coming down and it touches down and it doesn't explode, everyone takes a deep breath and go, okay, now what do we do? So now we got to get a hold to customs. We got to get a sniffer dog brought in from Gander. The, air, the passengers have to stay on board the aircraft. So we get the uh, cabins cleared. Passengers were cleared, but only allowed to take one bag. They ended up being in Goose Bay for another two or three days. So we actually had uh, a couple of, uh, a better part of 10 days Dealing with the uh, dealing with the situation. The other thing I'll throw in is, as the airport manager in Goose Bay is also responsible for the float plane operation, which they locally call Otter Creek. And I've received a call from the owner saying there's a passenger or a client in the Labrador wilderness that needs to come out. Can we have permission? So I had to go to the Minister of Transport. Because he was flying from Goose Bay, Interior Labrador, and back again, they gave permission. That aircraft was weighted down too much and never got airborne and ended up, as they call it, a crash. But everybody was okay, and the really? aircraft <clears throat> tipped over and had to be brought back to its own. So those are the things that I take from being the manager of the September 11th. It was all the things we described on September 11th. It's what happened on... I think that was like the 13th. And then the 17th, we had the, uh, the uh, bomb threat. Jeez. So being an airport manager in Goose Bay during that week to 10 days was absolutely phenomenal. I've learned so much. I've got so many takeaways. 
And as you said, it was, I'm doing my operational job and there's a community throughout Atlantic Canada that's doing their best to help all the passengers with literally giving them a tea and toast to help them out during those times. That's, uh, that's one hell of a week, Mary. <laughs> it was. <laughs> so, where, so then where do you go in life? Where does life take you now? I stayed with the airport corporation for a couple of years. And then I did a pivot in 2003 and went into the human resources field and went to uh, the mining industry. So I worked for a better part of 10 years in Boise's Bay. And then I uh, went from there to a diamond mine in Northern Ontario. Uh, came back and spent a couple of years at the construction site as the head of human resources and labor relations for the largest contractor there. Uh, 2,500 employees, tradespeople. So I was responsible for human resources, labor relations at the Muskrat Falls site. And then in 2017, I transitioned into uh, consulting and opened up my own uh, HR labor relations business consulting company, the name of which is Blue Sky Business Consulting. So it took me a long time to figure out what the name was going to be. And when I look back at my time in the September 11th, Blue Sky is obviously aviation related. Everyone hopes you have, you know, clear skies, blue skies as you travel, fair winds following seas, that type of stuff. But it also means that when you have a group meeting and you say to the team, we need to come up with a new concept to sell a product or develop a product or whatever it is, the term that's used from time to time is we're going to blue sky it. So being an HR guy and coming up with projects, having a blue sky as in developing thoughts and any ideas is acceptable and no idea is a bad idea. And my aviation background, that's how I became Blue Sky Business Consulting. So for the past five years, I've been dealing with clients in the fishing industry, uh, Aboriginal financial industry. Uh, did some work this past year for the Coast Guard, going back to my Navy roots. And right now I'm back in Goose Bay and I'm working for, so I've come full circle I'm providing HR services to Circo, who's providing the services to D and D. Oh wow! Um, How was the transition into your own business, Larry? Are, are you? Was that a good experience for you? Uh, it was scary. I yeah. I talked about it for years, and and you know when I decided to make the decision, it was like, okay, you made the decision. Now you just you just gotta you just gotta go with it and. You got to live so, with it. <laughs> you got to live with it. And it, it you know, you, you um, spend a lot of time thinking about it and wondering if you should and that kind of stuff. But I just knew from my own personality and, again, the foundation, Alan, of, you know, the cadets and, you know, the 9-11 and all the different jobs I had that I knew that I would be able to have a client. Now, granted, like I'll... Uh, or like a lot of us in the small business industry, you don't have clients 12 months a year, every day of the year. Some do. 
I've been successful, I'd say, out of the last five, six years, I've probably had clients 85, 90% of the time. So so this particular contract has been good for me. I've been, you know, a year, year and a half at it. And I've got a couple of small contracts with a hockey rink in St. John's and a construction company at the same time as I'm doing this. So, uh, yeah, it was a bit of trepidation and so far so good. It's amazing, Larry. What's a, that's a great journey, man. I mean, I, I can still reflect back on that week. That's that was one busy week. But listen, now you're a fellow from St. John's. I imagine you weren't past the overpass much uh, growing up. What what about Labrador? You find so appealing? It's a beautiful place, no doubt about it. You're absolutely right. I didn't know much about Labrador. I knew it was, you know, part of, you know, political science. I knew that 1927, the Privy Council awarded it to the uh, country of Newfoundland. So I knew the political side of things, but didn't know anything about it. Knew it was a, you know, a wilderness area. And there was a base up in Goose Bay and there was Churchill Falls. And that was probably all I knew about it. But when I came here, I first three years, I was a military officer. So I got to understand the camaraderie ship from the, from the uh, military. But because I was from St. John's, I made a conscientious, conscientious effort to be part of the community. And that helped me with other jobs that I got over the years. So I volunteered for the Canadian Broomball Championship. I did some work with Junior Achievement back in those days. Uh, Mon alumni. And so I just made myself uh, the Chamber of Commerce. So I just uh, put myself into the community and got myself known because oftentimes when folks come from the military and you're from a different province, you tend to stick to the folks you know on the base and you right. know, go into the mess halls and that kind of stuff. So I wanted to be a little bit different from that. And because my role was public relations officer, I had to develop a relationship with the local media and, and you know, my name, my face, my voice was all over the, the media. So I became a big part of the community. And when I say I was offered the job as the director of economic development, that was a big part of it because they knew who I was. They knew what I could bring to the table. So uh, I always believe in volunteering uh, a number of years. So I lived in Goose Bay for 17 years and uh, commuted back and forth. So over the past uh, 30 years, I've probably worked 27, 28 years, worked and lived in Goose Bay, in Labrador. So I've come to love the place. It's absolutely fantastic. The people are great, great fishing, great skidooing. And it's just the respect of nature. So if it's, you know, the middle of the summer and it's a sunny day, three or four guys will say, hey guys, let's go for a round of golf. Because, you know, tomorrow could be a crappy day it's, and reverse the seasons. It's yeah. a beautiful day. And you know that it's a snowstorm coming two days down the road. You say, come on, guys, let's get on the skidoos for a few hours. Yeah. And you take advantage of the beautiful weather that's in front of you. So it's always a respect for the nature. So I learned to understand nature and to respect it and so forth. And just the general population. And even now when I come back and, you know, see a lot of old friends, it's, Hey, how you doing? Haven't seen you for a long time. So yeah, I I I grew to love Labrador without a doubt. 
if, you know, Newfoundland, St. John's and Newfoundland, uh, people are connected. They, they want to, they want to come home. There's a, there's an emotional draw to it. But as you know, Larry, I have two sisters that live in Northwest River. And when I talk to them and their kids, there is a genuine connection to that big land of Labrador. They feel connected to that place even differently than people do in St. John's. I find it fascinating. It is. Uh, my oldest was a year old when we uh, moved here. And my youngest was born here. And if you ask them today, where's home, they'll tell you Goose Bay. Yeah. This is where their friends that they went to school with and played hockey and soccer and judo and all cadets and all that stuff that they were involved in as, as kids. And they still fondly remember that Goose Bay is home. Larry, great journey, great story. <laughs> what an adventure. Um, we always ask our guests to leave the the audience with one small piece of advice. Now you've been through some stuff, some really interesting stuff. What would that piece of advice be? A piece of advice is be kind to one another and remember that 20 years ago, 3,000 or so people went to work that morning on a couple of high-rise apartment buildings in New York City and didn't come home to their families. So my advice is to take each day and enjoy it to the fullest because you never know what tomorrow brings. 100%. Here are your final thoughts. Well, I mean, that's beautiful, Larry, what you just said. I mean, I think about that week in particular, again, it comes back to that, a bomb threat on September 17th, airplane crash on September 13th, the entire event itself on September 11th. What a, what a just difficult week, and, and you've pulled through it, um, and, you know, it's impacted you for the rest of your life. I really just want to say thanks for bringing these stories to light. There's a lot more to the September 11th uh, come from away than, than just the gander um, side of it. But I appreciate you know, making me think about nature, making me think about leadership, all of those things. So just thanks for uh, joining us today. Well, thank you for having me and uh, appreciate your time. And uh, Al, we'll see you again sometime soon. And Jerry, if we're all together in St. John's, then... Uh, we got to grab a cold beverage. Yes. <laughs> well, there's another wonderful edition of Gale Force Wins. Now, there's a guy watched his brother walk out the door in his cadet uniform and said, I want to do that. And from that, was able to parlay this into an amazing career that showed Larry, well, a beautiful part of the world that he went on to embrace. And, of course, that is Labrador. But really, what a fascinating uh, pivot in his life during September 11th, when the world went through that chaotic uh, series of events, Larry was in the middle of it all watching it happen and was able to comfort and help those passengers in Goose Bay. And, and that is to be commended. That, that's true leadership. And then goes on to continue his journey, starts his own business, Blue Sky Consulting, which is just it's a follow on to Larry's appreciation for what happened on that day and, and a different way to look at life. 
this has been an inspirational conversation. And if you can't find inspiration in a guy like Larry Pittman, I don't know where you're going to find it. Larry, I started the conversation saying that you were a role model when I was a young fella. You continue to be a role model when I'm not so young anymore. I really appreciate you coming on Gale Force Wins. And I always like to leave the audience with my own piece of advice. And that is quite simply, the world needs more Larry Pittman. So thanks very much. Thank you very much, Alan and Jerry. Appreciate your time. And I hope Gale Force Wins podcast is the best one ever. Cheers. Cheers, buddy. Thank you for tuning in to Gale Force Wins. That's Gale Force Wins, W-I-N-S dot com.